As G.K. Chesterton said, a dead thing can go with the stream, but only a living thing can go against it. Here on Swimming Upstream, we go against the cultural stream by championing life, liberty, and the pursuit of holiness. Your host is Eric Sammons, author of seven books, including Holiness for Everyone, The Old Evangelization, and Bitcoin Basics. Now let's get swimming. Welcome to episode 94 of Swimming Upstream. I'm Eric Sammons. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or Google Play or Stitcher or wherever you subscribe to your podcast. Also, if you would, I'd appreciate if you like and review us on uh, iTunes. That really helps other people find out about it. And so I'd appreciate if you did that. Okay, so Lent is coming up. I'm recording this in the last week of February. And uh, Lent begins next Wednesday with Ash Wednesday. And so last year I actually did an episode about Lent. And it's actually been one of my most popular episodes uh, I've done in this podcast after almost 100 episodes. So I thought I'd talk about it again. But this time I wanted to talk more specifically about the practice of fasting. And I've also talked about fasting on this podcast, uh, intermittent fasting specifically. Uh, That was a few months ago, I think. And so now I want to kind of bring it all together and talk about the spiritual and physical benefits to fasting, why we fast, hide in the Lent, things like that. Uh, The impetus for this is obviously Lent, but also I wrote an article that was just published a few days ago on 1 Peter 5. I'll link to it on the show notes page called To Love Fasting. And so I know a lot of people don't always read uh, long articles. It was kind of a long article, so I wanted to also include it as a podcast. I'm not going to read the article or anything like that, but it's going to cover essentially the same material that you find in the article. So first of all, let's just talk about fasting and Christian fasting specifically. Fasting has always been an integral part of the Christian tradition. It's an interesting point that we know that our Lord himself, Jesus Christ, he fasted for 40 days before he began his public ministry. There's that great line in Matthew where it says that uh, Jesus did not eat for 40 days and he was hungry. Really, Matthew, we weren't really sure about that. I guess that's his way of saying, don't forget, he's not, he, he really is man. He, he did become man. He's not pretending to be man. So he really is hungry, just like anybody else would be who hadn't eaten for 40 days. And so we see how important fasting was to our Lord that before he began his public ministry, he took 40 days to fast to prepare for that. Now, his disciples were accused of not fasting, although the disciples of John the Baptist fasted. The disciples of Jesus did not fast, and they were accused of that. But, and Jesus says, though, while the bridegroom is with, uh, with, with you, there is no need to fast. But he then adds, when the bridegroom is taken away from you, then his disciples will fast. And in fact, Christ's first followers took this to heart, and they made fasting a very regular part of their spiritual lives. We read in the Didache, that's an a early Christian writing, probably the first uh, the earliest Christian writing we have that's not part of the Scriptures, not part of the New Testament, it was probably written in the 70s A.D., and it notes that Christians fasted every Wednesday and Friday. and actually says we don't fast like the hypocrites do on, I think it was Tuesdays and Thursdays or Mondays and Thursdays. I can't remember. What he meant was that's the days the Jews fasted. Jewish people had a regular fast days, and Christians kept regular fast days. They just shifted the day when it happened, kind of like when... 
they shifted the Sabbath from Saturday to Sunday. But we see, though, that they fasted uh, every week. They would fast from uh, uh, two different days. Now, what that fast meant, we don't know for sure, but the most likely scenario meant that they just ate one time a day. They ate in the evening, uh, maybe before sundown, something like that. That was probably their fast. That's the most likely scenario. Another type of fasting done in the early church was catechumens would fast in the days leading up to the Easter vigil. So they were to be baptized at the Easter vigil. They would fast in the the days leading up to that. Now, both of those fasts eventually were abandoned as they in that type of practice. But both of them evolved into practices that became uh, quite prevalent throughout the church. That weekly Wednesday-Friday fast actually ended up becoming the uh, Wednesday-Friday-Saturday Ember Day fast that happens uh, four times a year at the beginning of each uh, season, each uh, uh, not liturgical season, but actual uh, season of, of the year, fall, spring, summer, winter. And that was just something that eventually evolved into. And, of course, the catechumens pre-Easter fast, that was eventually turned into Lent. And it wasn't demanded of Christians that they they fast for uh, 40 days, but they were supposed to give things up for 40 days, and they were supposed to limit their intake of food. Now, when Christianity became legal in uh, the 4th century, a lot of the practice of Christianity, let's be honest, frankly, became somewhat softer because it expanded to people who, who are now part members of the church simply because everybody else was. It was kind of part of being a Roman and things of that nature. But there was a group of people who wanted to continue the kind of harshness of Christianity that you found in the martyrs and the confessors from during the, perse- the persecutions. And so what they did, they, they became monks. And many of them went out to the desert to become desert monks monks. And so these monks, they would create great sacrifices in their life. And one of them was the regular fast in which they would deny themselves food every single day. The most common way they did this was just simply eating one time a day. And they, it would always be before sundown because usually they went to bed pretty early and they rose very early. And so they would eat once a day. It might be as early as noontime. It might be later in the day. That kind of depended on the season, if it was Lent or summer, things of that nature. But the point was it was very common for monks to only eat once a day. Now, for the monks, the idea of fasting was very important. And the idea of uh, one of the great sins that they felt that, that Christians had to combat, all Christians, not just monks, was gluttony. Now, I think we'd all agree that gluttony isn't exactly a sin brought up much today, but perhaps walking down the street in modern America, maybe it should be. And gluttony really, it involves three different, three different ways that you can uh, break, that you can commit the sin of gluttony. One would be uh, overeating, obviously, eating more than you should. Another would be desiring kind of being desiring delicate foods so to speak uh trying to eat like lots of sweets and things of that nature another would be eating outside of the appointed time so for example for the monk who's only supposed to eat once a day eating outside that once a day would be considered gluttony and gluttony really is a serious sin it's always been considered one of the most serious sins And in fact, St. John Cassian, who was a church father of the late 4th, early 5th century, and he was a monk, 
He wrote about eight vices that the Christian need overcome, and they were gluttony, fornication, avarice, anger, sadness. Uh, um, boy, I just um, I, I forgot how to pronounce it. Asedia, uh, asedia vainglory, and pride. And basically, though, he put these in a specific order. That order was not made up by him. Gluttony was first because he felt you had to overcome some of the earlier sins to really be able to overcome the later sins. Notice pride is the last sin on the list. It's the greatest of sins but it's all, and most difficult to overcome. And it's also you need to overcome some of these other sins before you can overcome pride. But he put gluttony first and foremost because he felt that if you did not overcome this first appetite, which is your literal appetite for food, you couldn't overcome the other ones. In fact, he had this great analogy where he talked about overcoming these eight vices were like the, the Israelites having to overcome the nations that had, that had uh, conquered, that, that were um, living in the promised land that the, that the Israelites had to conquer in order to take over the promised land. In the same way, the Christian had to overcome these vices to reach the promised land of heaven. However, there were only seven nations in the promised land. So what was the difference between the seven nations and the eight vices? Well, he said gluttony was like Egypt, that you first had to leave to even go to the promised land. And so you had to overcome gluttony before you could even engage in the battle with the other vices in his list. And so we see how important it was to, uh, to, to control the, the, the physical appetite for food and not to engage in gluttony. And to do that, you had to fast. In fact, uh, St. Benedict in his rule, he says that monks need to love fasting, not just engage in fasting because they have to, but really to love fasting, to realize how important it was to the Christian life. Now, so for the, in the first millennium of, the, of, of Christianity then, fasting was a very regular part of the monk's life, but also most Christians' lives as well. However, that strict regular fast of the monks, and of all Christians, even uh, regulating their food intake, it really did start to lessen and, and, and diminish over time. And this is mostly just because the availability of food and how much you ate it just increased over time. And the monks kind of followed the culture, followed society in doing that. And so you see by the 19th century, by, by like, you know, in the late Middle, middle Ages, you, you hear talk about that, that monks were eating a couple times a day. They didn't really have this uh, really harsh fast that they used to have in the first millennium. And then by the 19th century... Monks were eating three times a day, just like everybody else. And that's the case today, of course, that monks in general eat just as often as others do. And I also would say, though, that in, in today's world, in fact, fasting just simply doesn't exist in the Christian world. We, we see that specifically in the definition of fasting the church gives. The church asks First of all, the church only asks for two days of fasting in the entire year. So 365 days a year, the church only requires that, that, that Catholics fast two of those days. That's it. So first of all, that's a very minor requirement. But then secondarily, the, the definition of a fast is one regular meal and two smaller meals that don't add up to a regular meal. Well, that's still three meals a day. And that might be a sacrifice to somebody, and that's fine, but it's not fasting. Don't call it fasting because fasting means not eating. So you can't call eating three meals in a day fasting. 
And so what we see is fasting has essentially disappeared from the Christian life. And I think that this has a great impact on our lives because what we see is we really see in our society today that most of us live for pleasure. We live to uh, give ourselves what we want when we want. The idea of self-denial just doesn't exist really in the Christian life anymore or in society in general. And which leads to all kinds of problems. We see that, you know, something as obvious as something like, um, like abortion in which we, in which the, that's the direct consequence of somebody giving into a, a, to pleasure instead of having self-control and having relations with somebody when they shouldn't. And then it produces a baby and then they have an abortion to, to, to try to make up for, to try to fix that problem, so to speak. But we see it in everything where we basically we embrace these uh, things that we just think of ourselves and we put ourselves and we, we, we have such an attachment to material things, which I've talked about in previous episodes. And whenever you have an attachment to a material thing, it weakens and potentially even destroys your attachment to God. You cannot, as our Lord said, you cannot serve uh, God and mammon. You cannot have two gods. You can only have one God. Your God is either your your attachment to this world, or it is, is to God, the true God. And so we need to detach ourselves. And the first way we do that is we detach ourselves from our dependence on, on uh, satisfying our first appetite for food. And fasting does that. It's the primary way we can do that. It's the way we've always, uh, humanity's always done that. In fact, the church fathers had this great uh, visual image of the importance of fasting by comparing it to original sin. In the original sin, what, what happened? We see Adam ate something that he wasn't supposed to. And when he wasn't supposed to, you know, the Lord said, anything in this, in this garden you can eat except for this one thing. And so what does he do? He eats the one thing he's not supposed to. Well, in fasting, what we do is we don't eat something that we're allowed to eat. It's not saying that you're not supposed to eat. Obviously, we have to eat to survive on some level. But with fasting, we're denying ourselves of that. And so in a way, we're reversing that curse of Adam. We're reversing the original sin. And so that, that was the analogy, the imagery that the church fathers use. And I think it's very clear. So now that I've kind of hopefully made it clear that we need to fast, here comes the rub. Here comes the problem. Fasting is hard. <laughs> but here's the thing. Fasting is harder. We, I'm sorry, we, I should say we have made fasting harder than it should be through our modern diet. What do I mean by that? Now, let me explain my own personal experience. When I first, and I told this story last year in my episode when I talked about Lent and practices for Lent. When I, uh, when I became Catholic, it was actually almost a year, uh, how many years ago? 17, no, 27. Oh my gosh, I'm getting old. 27 years ago, almost to the day today, I decided to become Catholic. It was the end of February of 1992. I decided to become Catholic. And in my enthusiasm, I was only, I was a, I was a young pup in my early 20s. And in my enthusiasm, I wanted to do something great for Lent that year. I never, as a Methodist, I had never really practiced Lent, so to speak. We didn't really uh, practice that season, recognize that season, celebrate season, whatever you want to call it. And I wanted to do something big. 
And I had read about St. Francis of Assisi and how he had given up food for 40 days. And so I decided I'm going to do the same thing. I'm just not going to eat for 40 days. I mean, I would, I decided I'm not as good as St. Francis, so I'll eat a little bread and water each day. Uh, and I, I could eat on Sundays. That's what I would do. Well, it was a miserable failure. And by Sunday, I had given up, and I was back to eating my hamburgers and cheeseburgers and pizza and other things a college student would eat. And I was disappointed in myself. And over the years, over the next 20-some, 26 years or so, I basically would try to fast every once in a while. Like every Lent, maybe I would try a fast, or during, um, just during the season when I thought I felt like I wanted to try a fast. And I would fail miserably every time. Why would I fail? I would fail because, and I would try different ways to fast. Sometimes I would skip lunch. Sometimes I would skip breakfast. Sometimes I would eat very little, which I know isn't a fast, but I kind of considered it a fast at the time. And what would happen is I would get extremely fatigued, cranky, headaches, uh, just you achy all over. I felt miserable. And here's the thing. I couldn't fulfill the duties of my state in life as a, as a father and as a husband you know, as, as a worker, all those things I just couldn't do. I, I was cranky with everybody around me. I was miserable. I, I didn't have the energy to do anything. I, I didn't have the energy to pray. I was I'd get depressed. All these things would happen. And I was just like, how is this a Christian practice? I mean, I would read things about how fasting drew people closer to God and things like that. And I was like, this makes me miserable. It makes me a terrible person. And so I would give up. And I just couldn't see the connection between fasting and drawing closer to God. I even remember I gave a talk on fasting a, a number of years ago, and I admit the talk I gave was not from experience. It was just from book knowledge. It was not from experiential knowledge because I didn't really know how to fast. I didn't know uh, what the benefits of fasting really were. But as I mentioned in a uh, podcast a few months ago, I'll, I'll try to link to that episode in the show notes as well. I, I learned about the practice of intermittent fasting, which is a practice of fasting for physical reasons. It's not really, doesn't necessarily need to be spiritual, but it's more for health reasons. And it's this idea that you only eat uh, certain times a day. You limit your window of eating to maybe six to eight hours a day. And I started that uh, back last summer, so probably about six, uh, eight to nine months ago, something like that. And I found that I could do it. And the, the main reason I could do it is because I stopped eating I, start, I changed also how I ate during my window of eating. I stopped eating carbohydrates. Uh, I had already stopped eating sugars and things of that nature. But by having a very low-carb diet, a diet high in fat and protein, I didn't have those crashes that I used to have. And so when I fasted, I didn't, have, I didn't lose a ton of energy. I didn't get headaches. I didn't uh, get achy all over and things like that. No, I could continue to do my work. In fact... I found that I had more energy. I had mental clarity. And that mental clarity gave me spiritual clarity because now I could pray. I could focus on my devotion, whatever it might be, my, my spiritual reading, my prayer, whatever, my rosary, whatever the case may be. And I had energy to do my, my state, to fulfill my state in life even better than I had before. So it completely changed my attitude towards fasting. And what I saw was is that Fasting isn't something that should make you uh, lose all your energy, be completely miserable, achy, headaches, things like that. It's something, it's the opposite, in fact. Now, 
somebody might say, but wait a minute. I thought fasting is supposed to be a sacrifice. The whole point of Lent is we, we give things up. We're supposed to be sacrificing, and shouldn't fasting be a sacrifice? And the answer is yes. But it's the, we've been doing, if you're doing, if you've been doing fasting like I had been doing for years, you're doing the wrong kind of sacrifice. Here, here's the analogy I gave in my article at 1 Peter 5. I think it's a good one. I, I, I ran a marathon many, many moons ago. And when you're training for a marathon, you're going to have pain and suffering along the way. You just can't help it. I mean, because you're going to be doing a lot of running. And if you don't fight through that pain, you're not going to be able to succeed and actually complete the marathon. No pain, no gain, as they say. However, there are two types of pain. There's the pain you get from just training where you're sore and maybe achy all over at times. That's the type of pain you fight through and you continue on. But there's another type of pain. That's the pain from injury. Let's say you hurt your knee, which this actually happened to me when I was training for the marathon. I hurt my knee and I continued training. And I basically gave myself permanent knee damage. If you do that, you're going to give yourself damage. You're probably not going to be able to run the marathon. And you're definitely not going to, it's definitely not good for you. So there's some types of pain that you fight through and you sacrifice and, 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 you, and you endure. But then there's other types of pain that you tell yourself, wait a minute, this is the wrong type of pain. I don't fight through this. I have to now take a break. I have to stop. I would say with our modern diet, our high-carbohydrate, high-sugar diet we have, when we fast, we are experiencing the wrong kind of pain. It's like the injury kind of pain. Instead, what we should be doing is we should be, if we have a better diet and we do the right type of fasting, then what happens is we have the right type of pain. It's still, you still have hunger when you fast. You still have the, the, the need for detachment. I don't think we realize how much we get attached to eating. Like that was one of the biggest challenges for me when I first started this new type of fasting. It wasn't this like a headache or achiness or lack of energy. It was just the practice of eating had become so ingrained in me that I almost, it was very difficult to detach myself from that. It was like noon, and I was like, well, I need to go eat. But no, I don't have to go eat. Or if it was like snack time, oh, I got to go grab some chips out of, the, out of the closet at the pantry. No, I don't need to do that. So that was the kind of things. Those are the type of things you have to overcome. And so I think when you, uh, when you fast properly, you do have sacrifices to overcome, detachments that you need to engage in, things you need to, to, to detach yourself from. But it's not the same. It, 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 that's the good kind of sacrifices, the sacrifices that, draw, that, that strengthen you, that give you more power to overcome other attachments you have in your life and to draw closer to God. And, so, and also, once you get the practice of fasting, you can extend that fast longer and longer, and that does give you certain sacrifices, so a greater hunger and things like that. One thing I do want to note for those who haven't fasted for any length of time before, hunger does not increase gradually and just continue to increase exponentially than as the longer you go, you fast. Hunger comes in waves because it's mostly a mental thing because most of us in America— we have fat stores, let's be honest, we have fat stores. And so our body, when it hasn't eaten in a while, it just takes from those fat stores and supplies the energy that we need. The hunger is simply a mental trick that's saying, oh, you normally eat now, could you please eat now? I'm used to eating and getting food, so go ahead and do that. But it's not like you actually need food. There's this incredible uh, 
case of, of a man who was like almost 500 pounds back in the early 70s who fasted for over a year. He literally did not eat food for over a year. He's under doctor's supervision and all that. He took a multivitamin and drank water and all that. And he was able to live off his fat stores for over a year. Now, most of us don't, don't weigh that much, so we couldn't go that long without eating. But the fact is the average American could literally go weeks, if not months, without food healthily. And now, yes, they might get hungry and things like that. Obviously, I wouldn't, wouldn't recommend doing that. But the point is it is physically possible. And so what happens is your hunger pains, they don't just continue to increase because you really need the food. What happens is your body, your, your mind just kind of says, okay, I haven't had food in a while. I need food. And so it just comes in waves. So you might get hungry at, at breakfast time. You might get hungry at lunchtime. But then it goes away after a little while. And you're back to where you were. And it might come back. And it might get stronger. Things you know, and that might happen. And if you go a longer fast, like for multiple days at a time, after about the second day, the hunger basically disappears. It, it usually after about forty-eight hours, you don't have hunger pains at all. And so that really is uh, something that people I don't think they understand. And so it really is an amazing thing how the body works and how God has made the body. But also the, the, the beauty of fasting, and, and it really is a sacrifice, but it's a sacrifice. All sacrifices we make should be done to draw closer to God. They shouldn't be done just as some, like, fashion that we're, we're like, heroic fashion of, like, stoicism. Like, oh, okay, we're just going to see how much we can endure. That's not Christian sacrifice. Christian sacrifice is always done for some good for some drawing closer to God. And so that's what fasting, true fasting, was done right, really does. It draws us closer to God. It deepens our commitment to God, and it detaches us from the things of this world. So I really would recommend that you look into the, the fasting and, and consider fasting in your own life. Now, there's two books that I, I highly recommend for fasting. Unfortunately, one of them is out of print and very expensive to obtain. I got it from a library. The first one, though, which is available is The Complete Guide to Fasting by Jason Fung. You can find that at Amazon, and it's the physical side. He's not, uh, I don't think he's Catholic. I suspect he might be Christian, but he's a doctor, and he basically explains how to go about fasting, the actual practice of fasting from a physical uh, standpoint for health. And so I recommend that, The Complete Guide to Fasting by Jason Fung. The other one is this great book called To Love Fasting, The Monastic Experience by Adelbert de Vogue. I don't know how to pronounce his last name. He's a Frenchman. It was written in the 1980s. And he's a uh, hermit who decided to, to do a, a one meal a day, to fast every day and only have one meal a day. He decided this on his own. And he talks about it. It's amazing because he, he did this in the 80s before we've really discovered all these things, like before Dr. Fung and all these others discovered it more recently. But his experience is exactly the same as what they say today. And it's a beautiful thing because he talks about the history of fasting and why we need to fast and what fasting does for us. Now, the problem with that book, like I said, the love fasting and monastic experience, it's out of print. So, like, I think the cheapest copy I could find online was like 50-some dollars. And it's a small little book, very worthwhile, but it's a small little book. But I do highly recommend it if you can find it in library. I had to go through interlibrary loan to get a copy of it, but it, it is worth it. Uh, to at least find at the library. So, okay, well, that's, I think I'm going to wrap it up there, but I just encourage you to look into fasting, both for health, physical health reasons and for spiritually healthy reasons. And I think with, with Lent upcoming, I think it's a great time to really look into it. 
Well, that's it for today's show. I really appreciate you listening. Until next time, keep swimming against the stream.